Welcome to the Tar Heel Hustle, where we explore the different dimensions of the Keenan Flagler Executive MBA program. I'm Javier Guillermo. And I'm Bola Mustafa. And we're your hosts. With us is our tireless producer, Mafe Fosilia, keeping us honest. We decided to create this podcast to share with you our collective experience during our time in the Keenan Flagler MBA program. This season, we'll interview current students and cover topics ranging from time management, leveraging the MBA to make career changes, and explore the MBA program from the perspective of young high potential classmates and international students. We will also talk to faculty members about leadership and explore how they constantly adapt to our ever-changing world. So, let's hustle. Let's get down to business. Let's get down to business. Today, we are very excited to welcome Professor Mabel Miguel. Mabel is a clinical professor of organizational behavior, and she teaches courses in leadership and management at UNC Keenan Flagler. From the moment we created this podcast, we were interested in hearing directly from the students how they felt about the program. We we're also curious to learn more about your experiences shaping EMBA students over the years. Professor Miguel, tell us about yourself. Wow, that's a broad question. But if I'm going to take it super literally, I'll tell you about a girl who was born in Buenos Aires, Argentina, more years ago than I'm willing to acknowledge. But it was enough years ago that when my family moved to Venezuela, when I was two years old, it took two days to get from Buenos Aires to Caracas by plane. So that'll give you an idea of when this might have been happening. <laughs> that I uh, lived in Venezuela, where uh, my parents had the foresight to expose me to the English language from a very young age, from kindergarten. And then at age nine, my parents wanted me to go to a boarding school, English speaking. So I would master English. And I was given a choice if I wanted to go to Europe, I wanted to go to Canada. I wanted to go to one of the Caribbean islands. And the deciding factor was, how many times can I go home every per year? And the closer I was to Venezuela, the more times I got home. So I went to school in Barbados, British West Indies. It was a boarding school. And I was there for six years, going back home three, four times a year because of the proximity. And from there, I went back to Venezuela, started my career working there, spent about six years, I think, working for Gulf Oil Corporation and in administrative kind of positions. And then my boss uh, said, you know, kind of wasting your time here in Venezuela. You really should try New York. And I went to New York on vacation and I was 23 years old. I went to New York on vacation and uh, there was a show in Rockefeller Center. I can't remember the name of the show, but the punchline was New Yorkers are born anywhere and then they come to New York. And I thought, (laughs) Yes, I love this city. So the only way I could stay in New York, move to New York, was to work for the United Nations because I didn't have a green card or a passport or a visa. And so I joined the UN Development Program, and that gave me a diplomatic passport or permit to be able to be in the state. Those blue passports. Uh, Yeah, it wasn't really a passport. It was more like a diplomatic visa. And, uh, but, you know, 
I came from a family. My father does not have a secondary education. My mother did finish high school, and they certainly did not have a vision for their daughters going to college. They thought sons should go to college, but daughters perhaps not so important. But when I was at the UN, I discovered everybody, including my admin, had a college degree. So I had experience, but I did not have a college education. So the UN partially sponsored me, and I went to New York University, and I got my bachelor's of science and economics and an MBA in finance. And then I met my husband-to-be and uh, he was wrapping up his PhD and got an offer to come to North Carolina. And that kind of loops into how did I end up in North Carolina? It was (laughs) his favorite offer uh, as a new assistant professor. And at that that point, uh, everybody around me was doing a PhD. And I thought, how hard can it be? I mean, all these people are doing PhDs, right? <laughs> Sign me up for one. And I'll, I'll never forget. So I came to Chapel Hill following him. And I started visiting universities to learn more about their PhD programs. So I went to NC State and I talked with a very, very well-known uh, industrial psychologist there who told me, you know, if you're interested in industrial psychology, I recommend you get a PhD in organizational behavior because it's similar and they pay much better professors because it's out of business schools. And I went, okay, say no more. I'm good. I'm honest. And then I went to Duke and they had a program that you could create your own program and design your own classes. And I said, well, I'm a kind of structured person. I like structure. He says, well, you could go to Chapel Hill and have your courses at Chapel Hill and then complete your PhD at Duke. I said, why don't I just go to Chapel Hill in that case, which I had been avoiding <laughs> because my husband was a new faculty member. It seemed that too many people in the same business school. And so at this point, I felt, you know, state has said yes to me. Duke has said yes. So I walked into the head of the PhD program, who was a guy called Dave Rubin. He was from New York City. And I walked in there and I told him that I had decided to join UNC PhD program. I <laughs> turned yeah, around and yeah. looked at me and said, do you know the meaning of the word hotspot? <laughs> we choose you. It doesn't work the other way around. <laughs> and so that is how I got to Chapel Hill. And that is how I got into PhD program in Chapel Hill. Nice. It's, it's been a, a journey to get here. It was a journey, but I think one of the things that I, you know, think of the professional development plan, think of many of the things we discuss in class. They're also structured. Think of the frameworks and the models and the intentionality of the entire field. And then think of a journey that is almost accidental, that is a series of decisions because the opportunity was there at the moment. And somebody said something and you went, oh, that sounds interesting. Let me try it out. So I think planning is great, but being open to opportunity is better. I love that. And how many years have you teach, Mother, here? Oh, dear. Can I plead the fifth about now? (laughs) Let me tell you, if I'm going to be literal-minded about that question, my interest in teaching, remember my background, I'm finance and economics. Uh, But I was working in the consultant recruitment unit at UN Development Program. I was having trouble getting people to follow the process. 
to reach out to a consultant and then communicate with us so we could draw the contracts up and stuff like that, right? So I put together a little seminar. And with the help of the training and development people, I launched a little seminar where I started teaching people nuts and bolts. So procurement, nuts and bolts, you could argue. And when I finished the first session, the guy who was in charge of training and development said, have you considered teaching? And, you know, I was, how old was I? I must have been 28 years old or something, right, at this point. And I said, teaching? No, I've never considered teaching. But he planted the seed in my mind. And when I was doing my, gosh, even my undergrad, because I went to school as an adult student. I was in my mid-20s by the time I started an undergraduate degree. I sort of started seeing this going, huh. I can see myself teaching. This looks pretty good. I can do this. So I started working with a a group at New York University that did simulations training and teaching. So I started teaching with them. And they were all PhDs. And that's how I ended up saying, I'll go get a PhD. So when you ask me, when do you start teaching? I would say I was about 26. And I'm not 26 anymore. And how have you changed during your years teaching at Kinan Flagger Business School? How have I changed? I think that the biggest change, and I was talking with somebody about this, I think in formulas and bullets and structures, and, and I think anybody who's taken a class from me knows that I do this. I take concepts and I break them down into pieces. And I say, okay, let's digest this in pieces. So I have a very atomistic, if you want to think about it, way of teaching. I break things into bite-sized pieces. And as the years passed, I realized that this made it easier for me to teach complex topics and for my students to learn complex topics, but it didn't really allow them to apply them in a holistic environment. So that's when I started shifting to telling students, okay, we separate all these topics so we can teach them. So I have a class on power and politics today and on conflict management tomorrow and on motivation and performance the day after. And we have all of these chunks because that's what you do in a survey course. You you cover a variety of topics, but we have to pull them all together because in the real world, they don't exist in isolation. I mean, it's almost nonsensical to talk about power and politics and not talk about conflict. I mean, how do you even begin doing that? How do you talk about leadership and management skills and not discuss motivation and performance? So at some point, all of this has to be brought together. So that was a big change in the way I thought. And it didn't happen quickly. It happened over, I would say, 10, 15 years, where I said, no, at some point, All of this has to come together. And you must remember that I kept saying in each class, how does this connect with the last bit? And how it's connect with what's going to happen next? And then when you have the final paper, I say, I just want a story. I want application. And all these topics are connected. Don't give me a chapter on power and another one on motivation. In this event, how did all these things interact to make what happened happen? So I think that's it. From atomistic to holistic teaching um, would be the biggest change professionally.
So, Mabel, in your opinion, what is the biggest advantage future MBA candidates will find and benefit from the Kinan Flagger EMBA program? I have to say the commitment to excellent teaching. I have found that this institution from the very first day I joined it as a doctoral student made it clear that, yes, we are a research institution, but our expectation is of very high quality teaching. And the result is that you have truly gifted teachers who truly care about learning because learning and teaching are not inevitable. You know, the fact that I teach doesn't mean you learn. There has to be a commitment to the learning of the students for this to happen. So the commitment I see in my colleagues to state-of-the-art teaching, to connecting with the students, to spending time, office hours, trying to understand how the students are seeing things. Your professors care about your learning. And the other thing is, I really think that you guys are amazing cohorts. And the people you meet in the program, I always tell them, you know, teams sometimes struggle. You know, we put you into those teams the first year. And some teams gel. And you have the time of your lives from the beginning. Others don't. And they are like nitpicking about this and that. And I always tell the teams, look, figure out how to make it work. And remember this, you're going to spend far more time as friends post-graduation than as team members during the program. So think about this being a network of people that you're getting to know and who will be your network post-graduation and learn how to work, even if you're very different people, because it's the long-term network that matters. And the network of the executive MBA program in particular, and I have to focus on it because I haven't taught in the MBA daytime in many, many years, so I wouldn't be able to speak with as much knowledge. The fact that you guys are doing this The fact that we have a, a cohort maybe two, three years ago that launched an organization called Listen First about people just trying to understand other people who were very different from them and listening first. Now, that was born spontaneously out of the EMBA program. And I see how you help each other in our class because we have that element of class contribution is more visible to me. And I see how you help each other through discussion boards and out of class and help answer questions and connect people who are looking for jobs. To me, the combination of the excellent and caring teaching and the network of people you meet makes this like a really win-win. Muy bien. Great answer. <laughs> well, I mean, other than this interaction with us, um, what's your favorite part of interacting with the Keenan Flag of the Business School uh, EMBA students? Oh, the favorite part is I don't have to start every class with imagine a job. <laughs> <laughs> that is hands down. So, um, the, you know, like every every single doctoral student, I started with undergraduates, and with undergrads, you you're like, okay, has anybody worked? And and you start, you know, trying to come up with illustrations that involve waiting tables or roommates, and you realize that some of the things you're teaching, they haven't had that experience yet. You're asking them to imagine an experience they haven't had. And as wonderful as the undergraduate uh, business students are at Carolina, I think they're fantastic. That lack of experience really stands in the way of a leading and managing course. 
with the EMBAs, you don't have to imagine a job. You are living it. So I, I, I am far more likely to get a question that goes, okay, so I, I hear what you're saying, but in my situation, this is also happening. So when both things are happening at once, so the conversations are far more interesting. And you elevate the discussion. You bring in your own challenges. You, through tools like the discussion board and the study teams, you help each other with your experiences, you apply concepts in ways that just make them come together and make sense. You make them valuable to yourselves and valuable to other students. I learn from you every single year. I will be reading through posts on the board uh, or notes have been sent and I go, huh, let me pick up that book that the student recommended or let me check out that article or I didn't know this tool was available. I learn as much from you as you learn from me. That is what makes the difference with EMBA students. It's not like, let me memorize this framework. You don't look at things like that. You say, okay, does this framework make sense to me given my experiences? And where am I going to memorize? We don't have to memorize things. That's why there are no exams in my class, certainly no closed book, anything. It's all about application. And what are frameworks and models? They're just a way of making sense of experience. And you bring the experience to the table. Great advice. So we've talked a lot about your class and about the different topics and frameworks we see in your class. But if we want to boil it down to one, one idea, what is the main takeaway from your class? There is always more to learn. There is always more to learn. You have to stay curious. If you think about the course, we do a survey course. Any one of the topics we touch could be a semester course, right? So what do we do? We say, okay, where are you at right now with this topic? This is state-of-the-art research on the topic right now. Let me give you a framework or two to start thinking about the application of this. And here is a list of 25 recent articles on the topic (laughs) that you could read and you could explore this in more depth. So in the end, what am I saying? I'm saying stay current read, apply. This is not a static field. So that that would be in terms of attitude. Now, in terms of content, actual an idea, a content idea, I will go back to our very first class when we talk about the heart of leadership, the critical skills or the critical principle of leadership. And I'd say, Never stop learning about yourself. Self-awareness is fundamental for a leader. You need to understand why you're doing what you're doing, what makes you tick. Truly understand yourself. What are you good at? What are you less good at? Because the only way you're going to manage yourself effectively, and we all need to manage ourselves, we can talk all we want about being an authentic leader, but we have to be flexible. We have to adjust our behaviors to situations. How are you going to manage yourself if you don't truly understand yourself? And you cannot manage other people and understand other people until you understand yourself. So if there was one leadership concept would be spend time introspecting so you're a more effective manager of yourself. And then take the time to get to know the people that you're trying to lead so you can manage them more effectively. 
That's amazing because when we spoke about that in class, I, I think it was the first class, first class that we had. That was the moment I realized I was in the right place and I was investing my time correctly. That's when I said, yeah. yes, this was the right decision. Excellent. Glad to hear it. <laughs> Glad to hear it. I totally agree with you, Javier. So, Mabel, <laughs> when you hear the name Tar Heel Hustle, what comes to mind? What does oh, it that, mean to you? It was so funny. I mean, when I connected to what you guys are doing, it tells me that we have some of the most awesome students ever. The fact that you're taking the time, you're in an unbelievably busy program in a crazy year that has been throwing curveballs at us. It's stressful. It is... And you're allocating time to doing this, to giving back to the school this way. It's so heartwarming and so inspirational. I'm just thrilled. The, the name, the fact that you're doing it. Now, why Tar Heel Hustle? I spent time thinking about it. I thought it, it, it should have dance steps attached to it. <laughs> you know, I totally think that you need to develop a, a, a choreography. I think it has to go with the hustle. So I was thinking of asking you, why did you name it the Tar Heel Hustle? That's a great point. We, we're going to leave that to like the last episode before we tell everyone. <laughs> well, we love your answer though. That's, that's a great, we've, we've gotten to think about the dance before. We, we appreciate you. We appreciate hey. you. Thank you so much. Take care awesome guys. Time. Good luck. Thank you. Well, that wraps up this episode. Stay tuned for our next episode with our classmates, Aviva Sakanogo, Vaishak Sukumaran, and Mafia Ocilia, our brilliant and beautiful producer. Absolutely. They told us about their countries of origin from the Ivory Coast, India, and Venezuela, their journey, and what brought them to UNC Kenan Flagler. I especially enjoyed Vaishak's story and inspiration for his name. Looking forward to sharing with everyone. Hasta luego. Odabo. In case you're looking to get in on a Tar Heel hustle, make sure you check out our episodes available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to be featured on a future episode of the Tar Heel Hustle, feel free to click on the link in the show notes. We look forward to having you on the show. Until next time, keep hustling. Keep hustling.